Hello, I'm Robin Williams, and welcome to the fourth and final Boyer Lecture, presented by Professor Suzanne Corey, former president of the Australian Academy of Science, now in its 60th year. The Boyer Lectures began in 1959, on the suggestion of Sir Richard Boyer, who chaired the Australian Broadcasting Commission. The ABC board selects the lecturer, and it's interesting to note that it took them until 1975, 17 years, to invite the first female lecturer, Roma Mitchell. Suzanne Corey also notices the dearth of women in certain fields of enterprise, and indeed she is the first woman to be elected as president of the Academy. Only Dorothy Hill of Queensland held that position briefly on the death of the male incumbent. But now, in the 21st century, women are showing just what they can do in brain-based work. We ignore this promise at our own cost. Professor Corey's fourth Boyer lecture is called People for Science. I've argued strongly in these lectures that Australia's future health and prosperity is critically dependent upon science and innovation. But we have a major science brain drain in this country. A very concerning loss of women from careers in science, technology, engineering and maths. Overall, women graduate from our universities in the sciences in comparable numbers to men. Postgraduate completions are also comparable. But as they move up the ranks, there's a shocking drop-off. Only 17% of appointments above senior lecturer in the sciences are women. How can we hope to prosper? if we're losing so many of our potential knowledge makers and innovators? How can we hope to compete internationally if we're losing so much creativity? Actually, Australia is not alone here. It's the same the world over. Part of the problem, of course, is historical. Past attitudes and policies often actively discriminated against women or, at best, failed to nurture their careers. When I was growing up, my mother and her peers gave up their paid jobs when they got married to look after their families and support their husbands' careers. But my mother had yearned to be an opera singer, and in unguarded moments, she and her friends would admit to feeling frustrated that they hadn't had the chance to achieve their own personal dreams or to be seen clearly as individuals rather than simply as a mother, carer or wife. By the time I entered the workforce, the role of women in our society was changing. I was very fortunate to have male mentors who always supported my career. And although my promotion may have been slower than it should have been, I never felt that any door was closed to me. But a great deal more change is needed if every woman is to have the opportunity to fulfil her potential in our society. I will speak of women in science because that's what I know best, but the message is more general. Having women at the heart of all human endeavours can only make our world a better place. Through the ages, there have been many heroines of science, although you might not think so, because they're largely absent from our museums and our cultural narrative. We could start with Hypatia mathematician, astronomer, philosopher and teacher who lived in ancient Alexandria. It was probably Hypatia herself who developed the first Earth-centric version of the universe, although that's often attributed to her father, Theon. 
But Hypatia paid the ultimate price for being so far ahead of her time. She was beaten to death and burned by a mob of Christian zealots in 415 AD. Jumping forward to the 19th century, German-born Caroline Herschel was initially brought to England by her brother William as his housekeeper, but she also assisted him in his astronomical work and became a brilliant scientist herself. She was the first woman to discover a comet, and she described numerous new nebulae and star clusters. She was also the first woman to have her work published by the Royal Society, and she was awarded a gold medal by the Royal Astronomical Society in 1828. Another heroine of the 19th century was Mary Anning, who became England's foremost fossil hunter. Mary was taught how to find and clean fossils by her father, an impoverished cabinet maker, and together they sold them from a seaside stall to supplement the family income. As an 11-year-old, Mary dug up the first ichthyosaurus in the cliffs near her home in Dorset. She also discovered the first plesiosaur. Her many spectacular discoveries changed concepts in evolution. For example, they led to the first realisation that dinosaurs developed from fish. But she wasn't a member of the scientific establishment, and her work has been largely forgotten by history. During the first half of the 20th century, things improved somewhat, and several women were recognised with the ultimate accolade, a Nobel Prize. Marie Curie, physicist and chemist, is one of the rare women of science to have become a household name. She discovered, of course, the radioactive elements polonium and radium, and actually she won not one, but two Nobel Prizes. Only three other people have ever won a Nobel Prize twice. She was also the first woman to be made a professor in the Sorbonne's 650-year history. Her daughter Irene also won a Nobel Prize for work on radioactivity. And like Marie, Irene died from her lifelong exposure to radioactivity. Several other early female Nobel laureates are perhaps not as well known outside scientific circles. The first British woman to win the prize was X-ray crystallographer Dorothy Crowfoot Hodgkin. Even at 10, Dorothy was diving into chemistry, minerals and crystals. Later, she deciphered the atomic structures of three molecules of immense importance in medicine, penicillin, vitamin B12 and insulin. Yet the headlines announcing her win in 1964 spoke sad volumes for the lack of respect accorded to most women scientists over the years. Nobel Prize for British wife, proclaimed the Daily News. Grandmother wins Nobel Prize, read the Daily Mail. And the observer was astonished that this affable-looking housewife had won the prize for a thoroughly unhousewifely skill. Italian Rita Levi-Montalcini began her research in her bedroom, hidden away from Mussolini's fascists who'd forbidden Jews from practising medicine or science. Over the course of the war, armed with only a simple microscope and fertilised eggs that she got from the local farmers, she studied the nervous system as it developed in embryonic chicks. Later, in the US, this work would lead to her discovery of a protein that's vital for growth and survival of nerve cells, and to her Nobel Prize in 1986. 
I had the very great pleasure of meeting Levi Moltorcini at New York's famous Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory on this very same day that I met U.S. maize geneticist Barbara McClintock. Because she was a woman, McClintock had been denied an academic position within the university sector, but she'd found refuge finally at this Cold Spring Harbor lab. She discovered so-called jumping genes, or more properly, DNA elements that can move around the genome, turning adjacent genes on and off as they go. She was way ahead of her time, and it took decades before the scientific world realised that this was a fundamental mechanism driving evolution. McClintock was finally awarded the Nobel in 1983, when she was 81 years old. Rosalind Franklin did not win the Nobel Prize, although many believe she should have. She was born into an enlightened family, but she still had to struggle against her father to study science at Cambridge. It was her superb X-ray data on DNA that Watson and Crick used to discover the famous DNA double helix, without her knowledge or her permission. Unfortunately, Franklin died of ovarian cancer at the age of 38, before the Nobel Prize was given in 1962, to Watson, Crick and Morris Wilkins. The Nobel Foundation does not award the prize posthumously. Mathematics does not have a Nobel Prize, but it has its own equivalent, the Fields Medal. No woman had ever been awarded a Fields Medal, but this barrier was broken just last month when it was given to Iranian Maryam Mitsikhani who was educated at Tehran's Sharif University and then at Harvard and is now a professor at Stanford. All of these women stand out like beacons. They challenge the norms of their society to push the boundaries of knowledge. What sustained them and other early women in science to such high achievement? After reading their stories, it seems to me that there were four critical factors. First, most of them had parents or relatives who were deeply committed to education and learning. They'd been exposed to outstanding teachers and liberal-minded schools or universities. And several had husbands, brothers or fathers who supported their careers, sometimes at considerable sacrifice. But above all, the most crucial common element is that these women were driven to breaking barriers by their burning love of science and discovery. These lessons still resonate today, and I shall return to them later. What has Australia's record been like for women in science? Unfortunately, we inherited conservative British societal attitudes, so although our universities opened their doors to women relatively early, few women dared to enter in the early years. One of the major impediments for women was the 1902 Commonwealth Public Service Act. Through this act, every female officer was deemed to have retired from the Commonwealth Service upon her marriage. This restriction enshrined discrimination and legitimised male domination in many organisations, not just the public service. And I'm ashamed to say that Australia was the last democratic country in the world to repeal such a restriction. To illustrate what a negative impact it had, let me tell you the story of Ruby Payne Scott, Australia's first female radio astronomer. In fact, 
one of the first radio astronomers in the world. Ruby trained in physics at the University of Sydney, where she was often the only woman in her classes, taking out her Master of Science in 1936. She joined the Division of Radio Physics at CSIRO, then known as CSIR, and there she made fundamental contributions to solar radio astronomy and was involved in top-secret radar work during World War II. When she married in 1944, she kept it a secret in order to keep her job. Five years later, however, the secret marriage was outed, and although CSIRO kept her on, she lost her permanent position. Then came the second and fatal blow to her career. In 1951, she became pregnant. There was no maternity leave at the time, and Payne Scott was forced to resign. Recently, Nobel laureate Brian Schmidt broke down in public when speaking about the loss of Ruby Payne Scott to science. How could this country possibly throw away someone like her? He asked in anguish. Despite the obstacles, several early women scientists did achieve noteworthy research careers. One of the first was Georgina Sweet, who graduated in biology from the University of Melbourne in 1896, became a highly published parasitologist, and was the first woman in Australia to hold an acting professorship. She never made it to professor, though. Her male colleague was promoted ahead of her. Another was Queensland geologist Dorothy Hill, who pioneered the mapping of coral fossils in Australia starting in the 30s. Her work greatly aided searches for coal and oil-bearing strata, and we're still benefiting from that work. She became the first female professor at an Australian university and was the first woman to become president of the Australian Academy of Science in 1970. It was another 40 years before I was elected to that position. I certainly hope it won't be so long until the next. By the time I started my own research training in the mid-60s, things had started to change for women. This was partly due to a major scientific advance. Can you guess what it was? Of course, it was the development of the oral contraceptive pill. Our liberation also owed a great deal to the campaigns for women's rights that were springing up in the US and the UK at that time. In 1964, it had become illegal in the US to deny women access to jobs based on their gender. And following the momentous strike by the sewing machinists in Ford's plant in Dagenham, the UK passed the Equal Pay Act in 1970. By the early 70s, women undergraduates were present in much greater numbers in science, maths and engineering courses, and this slowly spread to postdoctoral training. But women were rarely given the limelight. I still vividly recall my own first international conference in 1970 at Cold Spring Harbour, when I was one of only two women speaking amongst the 97 other speakers. Today, as we stand at the beginning of the 21st century, how are girls and women faring in science, maths and engineering in Australia? Sadly, in our schools, the proportion of girls taking serious science and maths subjects has been dwindling rather than improving. In New South Wales, for example, the number of girls taking no maths at all after Year 10 increased from 7.5% in 2001 to 21.5% in 2011. This is more than twice the proportion of boys not studying maths.
This pattern continues at university. Overall, 56% of Australian university graduates are women. But this masks a serious deficit of women graduating in maths, stats, physical sciences, engineering and computing. How do women fare in academic positions? Progress has been good in recent times in Australia. And overall, the percentage of female academics is 40 to 45 percent, comparable to Finland and higher than almost any other country surveyed, with the perhaps surprising exception of Turkey. Here's the rub, though. As in the world of business, the proportion of women at senior levels in academia is appalling everywhere. In Europe, barely 20 percent. In Australia, only 28 percent. And as I said earlier, the statistics are far worse in the sciences, even in the life sciences, where women often outnumber men at earlier career stages. So why is it that there are so few senior women scientists and academics? And what can we do about it? The steep drop-off begins after the postdoctoral period, when it's time to advance to being an independent team leader and a tenured faculty member. Women find this step particularly daunting, because it occurs during their early 30s when family responsibilities often kick in. Childbearing and child nurture make it very difficult for a woman to compete in science at the highest level. The long hours required to become a successful experimental scientist are not easily slotted into a family schedule. What's more, science now moves so fast and is so competitive that it's hard to get back onto the merry-go-round after taking time out. Therefore, many women simply abandon their scientific career at this stage or shift to another that offers more flexibility and better work-life balance. My two wonderful daughters have been my heart's delight since they were born. But the decision to have children was the most difficult of my life because I was so committed to science. I feel incredibly fortunate that I managed to do both with very little time out. I worked hard to juggle the competing priorities of work and family and make it work on both fronts. But I was also very lucky. Above all, I had the strong and consistent support of my husband, who's also my lifelong scientific partner. Jerry meaningfully shared both our family and our scientific responsibilities. Other critical factors for me were waiting to have my family until my research career and salary was relatively secure, having access to a high-quality childcare centre, having family support during the school holidays, and living close to my workplace and children's schools, which meant minimal time out for commuting. But I was privileged. Most women cannot rely on the goodwill and support of partners and extended families to help sustain their careers. Furthermore, while family responsibilities are certainly a major factor, they're by no means the only reason that women don't progress up the ladder in the workforce. There are other cultural issues at play. We still live in a society that primarily values women for their appearance, not their intellect or their achievements. Our popular culture and our media daily reinforce messages that women should be entertaining, respect authority and conceal any strong opinions they may hold. It's no wonder with this constant reinforcement of gender stereotypes 
that women are often slower to develop the self-belief required for competitiveness, that women tend not to put themselves forward as assertively as men, and that their achievements are often overlooked and undervalued. Regrettably, conscious and unconscious gender bias still riddles our workplaces. It's well documented that identical work tends to be undervalued when it's done by a woman, and undervalued not only by men, but, ironically, also by women. There are no easy solutions to reversing the female brain drain. Action is required at every stage of life and career development, and it's vital that men as well as women take a very proactive role. Parents and teachers must strive to build self-confidence and independence in girls and young women. They must ensure that the talents and interests of girls are nurtured as broadly as those of boys. Don't bind our girls' feet to traditional female occupations. Fit them to range boldly and freely through all career possibilities. Give our girls visions of becoming astronauts and explorers, engineers and inventors, rather than becoming Disney princesses and meeting Prince Charming. All our children, boys and girls, should grow up expecting to truly share domestic work and be trained to do so. This empowers men as well as women. In my father's generation, men who lost their wives were unable to care for themselves because they'd never operated a washing machine or even boiled an egg, let alone cooked great meals like my son-in-law. More often than not, the woman still shoulders the major burden of early child-rearing. As a consequence, her job confidence and career progression often takes a major, sometimes even fatal, hit. But men also miss out. They don't fully experience the wonder of those early days and the unequivocal love of a young child. Part-time work for both parents can be a very effective way of sharing the responsibility and sustaining both careers. Reform of parental leave incentives can make a big difference here. In Norway, when paternal leave became available on a use-it-or-lose-it basis, the proportion of men taking leave increased from 4% to 89%. Of course, high-quality, affordable childcare is absolutely critical for enabling women to remain in the workforce, irrespective of whether they access it full-time, like I did, or part-time like many do. Indeed, in my view, this is the single most important factor. The waiting lists in this country for childcare speak of great unmet need. Governments must shoulder increased responsibility in meeting this need through capital works, quality training, better wages for carers and parental tax relief. Employers need to improve gender equity and progress should be measured and benchmarked. They should provide proactive support by providing flexible working hours and childcare assistance. For example, in my research institute, women can apply for a short-term grant for a technician to help keep their projects going while they're on maternity leave. Employers should also actively assist parents to resume their careers after meeting their family responsibilities and make allowance for the break when assessing achievement for career progression. 
Many measures that improve gender equity are not onerous or expensive. They only require a shift in thinking and emphasis. Junior women should be actively mentored, and conveners of scientific conferences and committees should ensure that women are fairly represented on the programs. Finally, and above all, we must inspire our women to aspire. My passion for science was constantly nurtured by my environment, by the ideas and achievements of the great scientists that surrounded me, both at Cambridge and then back in Melbourne. One of the best ways of inspiring our young women to stay in science is to make them aware of the women who've succeeded before them, not only in times past, but today. They need to know about Professor Nalini Joshi, a pure mathematician, who says maths is in her heart. Nalini wants people to feel about mathematics the way they feel about music. And then there's 25-year-old Marita Cheng, 2012 Young Australian of the Year, who encourages girls into engineering and technology by running robotics workshops in schools and has now founded a company to make robotic arms for people with disabilities. Let them be inspired by Professor Ingrid Schaeffer, whose research on the genetic causes of epilepsy is helping to transform diagnosis and treatment, particularly for children. And marine biologist Professor Emma Johnson, whose studies range all along Australia's coast, from the Great Barrier Reef to the Antarctic. Tell them about Professor Anna Delatek, civil engineer and 2012 Victoria Prize winner who's developing new ways to recycle stormwater to create beautiful green spaces within our cities. And of course, they should all know about our Nobel laureate, Professor Elizabeth Blackburn, who discovered telomeres, the vital protective cap on chromosomes, whose work has major implications for cancer and ageing. There are just so many wonderful women with inspiring careers out there, showing us what a difference they make to discovery and innovation. And many of them have children. Not that any of them would say juggling family and career has been easy. But as Malcolm Fraser memorably told us, life was not meant to be easy. Rather, life is about making a difference. Let's support women to lead fulfilling careers as well as fulfilling family lives. Let's work to maximise all of Australia's potential, not just half, for the enrichment and benefit of this nation and the world. Life isn't meant to be easy, quite. That was the fourth and final Boyer Lecture presented by molecular biologist Professor Suzanne Corey from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute in Melbourne. There is a book of these talks on the importance of research, on R&D and the economy, on our environmental future, and, as you heard this time, on the role of women in the 21st century, or what it could be. Essential ideas for a fair and prosperous world. Production by Maria Tickle, with technical assistance from Carrie Dell, and Matthew Crawford. I'm Robin Williams.